calling all aspiring investment professionals. Get a leg up on the competition. Final registration for the August CFA exam ends on May 14th. Register now to secure your spot. The CFA designation is a gold standard in the investment world, opening doors to high-powered careers and impressive salaries. Head over to cfainstitute.org to register. Don't wait. Take control of your finance career today. Hi, welcome back to another episode of Take 15. Today, I'm joined by uh, Chris Duvos from Venture Investment Associates from Palo Alto, California. Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's very, great. Very glad to have you. Absolutely. Um, you know, we, we listened uh, to your presentation earlier, and I was hoping you could share with our audience a little bit about your particular approach to venture capital investing. Well, we're a fund of funds investor, so we're not actually investing in securities, but we're investing in the people that then invest in those securities. And as such, provide a really interesting role in the ecosystem, um, but are investing in some really hard to understand things, and those are people. And it's, it's funny because I spend a lot of time telling uh, my mom, who thinks I'm a retail broker uh, and doesn't really quite understand what I do, I tell her that really I'm more like an investigative journalist than I am an invest investor. Um, and when we think about making investments, um, we look at, uh, at kind of four, um, four great, you know, kind of big areas. Um, one is, is the people. Um, ultimately, we're, uh, we're betting on individuals who, uh, who can make you know, good investments. And, and really, when, you, when you're talking about venture and, uh, and innovation, you're talking about people who can see around corners and see the new, new thing and shoot an arrow kind of eight years into the future and, and have it hit a target um, uh, and, and really be great mentors to their companies and, and, uh, and uh, add value and be, uh, you know, kind of be catalytic owners of, of businesses. And so understanding people is kind of vital. Are, are, are the people in whom we're investing, are they uh, distinctive in some way? Do they have a particular domain expertise? Are they great mentors to companies? Do they have entrepreneurial experience? Do they have inve experience as investors and principals uh, in businesses? And, uh, and so that's something that we spend a lot of time trying to get our arms around. Um, we also need to understand the strategy of a fund and what, what's the resonance of the people and the strategy. And I don't pretend to, to understand the, the latest, greatest technology, so I don't, I'm not judgmental about strategy, but I need to make sure it's relevant. Um, we don't want people who are looking for the latest, greatest buggy whip company or, uh, or, uh, or analog watch uh, uh, you know, strategy, um, but rather uh, are doing something that's, that's interesting and, and are the people kind of right for that strategy. Um, the people in the strategy in action is called the portfolio. And so I spend most of my day actually with portfolio companies and understanding at a, a kind of a primary source level, um, you know, what, what it is that, um, what it is that uh, portfolio companies do and how the investors have been kind of additive to those portfolio companies. And out of the portfolio falls performance, which is a lagging indicator, not a leading indicator. And so all those things are really kind of hard to get your arms around, which is, which is why I finally feel like I've justified my history degree from college, um, because I, I think of Herodotus not only as the father of history, um, but also as the father of venture capital due diligence, because Herodotus spent his life wandering around among the people, listening to what they did, understanding what they did, and then reporting, filtering it and reporting it back. Um, and in the same way, uh, living out in Silicon Valley, I spend the bulk of my day with entrepreneurs, um, understanding the businesses uh, that they're building, understanding how they're building the businesses, understanding which partners are the most value added for them, and, uh, and really doing something that is kind of wildly inefficient. 
um, which is just just kind of wandering the earth and finding out which uh, you know which firms are uh, are really the catalytic owners that we're looking for. So really, what you're in is entrepreneurial finance. And as you uh, think about the way that entrepreneurial finance has changed over time, can you give our audience a sense for what has gone on and, and how it's evolving and where we're at today? Sure. And so there are a couple of things that are going on today that are really interesting. And one is uh, a paradigm shift in terms of architecture um, that's as important as the, you know, the, the, the advent of semiconductors or, or, or mini computers or, or the, the switch to the network or to the internet. And that's a, the shift to kind of uh, you know, cloud and mobile and all, all this stuff. We're seeing a real kind of re-architecting of uh, of the information technology landscape. That's really important. What's happening at the same time is as important, and that's, the, uh, that's some, of the, the, some of the things that have gone on that have been enabled by the very, um, these very trends, and that's um, really what I'll call the development of the nimble enterprise. And it's really interesting to see that today, it costs an order of magnitude less to get a business off the ground than it did maybe 10 years ago. 10 years ago, a typical um, you know, software business, uh, for example, might take seven to $10 million to get to first revenue, whereas today, you can actually probably build that same business uh, on 700000 to a $1 million of capital um, before it gets to first revenue. And revenue is important because once that starts coming in over the transom, um, the capital needs of the business uh, uh, in terms of outside capital uh, uh, become uh, lower. Revenue is the ultimate in non-dilutive financing. Um, and so the things that, you know, under, trends that underpin this are, are, you know, real cost reductions in, you know, kind of computing power, bandwidth, virtualized infrastructure, the ability for us to, to sign up with, you know, Amazon Compute Cloud or any of the, uh, any of the other, you know, providers to really kind of, you know, host our company. Whereas in, in prior years, you would have had to buy a room full of servers, um, uh, uh, you know, that's really driven down costs. The ability to kind of fast cycle idea testing because you're not constrained by your equipment. You can kind of dial up and dial down uh, your equipment uh, uh, needs, uh, you know, the computing as a utility, as it were. That allows you to, to, to really kind of parallel process idea testing as, uh, as, a, as a new enterprise and really, um, you know, really uh, fail bad ideas faster and, uh, and move on to more productive areas of time and capital uh, investment. So earlier you mentioned something that I thought was very provocative and I think uh, really interesting for our audience uh, to think about, which is uh, that new, new paradigms in technology enable companies to fail fast and fail cheap. And so they bring down the cost of uh, production uh, to get their product to market and to get to the point where they discover success or failure. Given that, how is that changing the underlying economics of managing a venture capital portfolio? So it's really interesting because kind of classic venture capital, what people, what people think of when they think of venture capital is um, you know, firms writing pretty sizable checks, you know, kind of five, seven, ten million dollar checks into portfolio companies to help those companies kind of build out and, and kind of prove their concept and alpha test their concepts. Um, but what we've seen is, is capital requirements have come way down, is that you don't need that you know, $5 million check. You might only need $500,000 or a million dollars. And what's interesting is with that small check, um, you, know, you can validate, de-risk, or disprove the entrepreneur's hypothesis. So with a very small amount of money, you can kind of very quickly turn over a card. And that actually changes radically the, uh, the, the dynamics. Now, what you'll see is you'll see a lot of companies that do fail fast and fail cheap. And you actually might see in the short term higher mortality rates among portfolio companies, but the amount of dollars that in aggregate go into failed companies come down. So it really actually kind of changes your portfolio construction somewhat um, in some very interesting ways. 
said another way, um, what you might see is, uh, is portfolios get larger, um, but in a sense, those are more options that, uh, that managers are buying. But instead of these options being extremely long-dated, way-out-of-the-money options that are expensive, these are actually cheaper, shorter-dated options um, uh, that aren't necessarily down payments on subsequent rounds of financing, but real options uh, you know, that can expire worthless or that can be reinvested in. Right. So your follow-on investments can have much higher probability of success. In, in a sense, absolutely. That's, that's one way to, to think about it. And in fact, um, because you can fast cycle and uh, uh, you know, your, your hypothesis testing um, and you can scale in response to growth, not, uh, not in advance of it, it really changes kind of the capital deployment dynamics and it actually allows you to build, some, uh, build and scale uh, enterprises uh, in very meaningful ways. Now, of course, the dark side of all this is the barriers to entry have come way down, and because it's easy for me to start a company, it's easy for the next guy to start a company as well. And so, uh, so the tried and true fundamentals of, uh, you know, kind of big markets, great management teams, and, and barriers to entry still apply. Now, as we think about the evolution of the venture capital industry over time, it's just been an absolute explosion of capital that's gone into the business. Um, how is that changing, uh, given that uh, they're not getting the same returns that they once were. And what do you expect uh, for that going forward? So it's interesting because uh, the venture capital industry was very much a cottage industry until um, a confluence of events, uh, including uh, you know, kind of institutional acceptance of the asset class, um, driven in large part by the, uh, the writing of the Yale case by the Harvard Business School guys, um, you know, great returns and, uh, and an acknowledgement of the role of innovation in, 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 uh, in institutional portfolios, really uh, helped uh, venture capital to, to kind of reach a new plateau of fundraising. But as we know, uh, uh, you know size is the enemy of performance, and what we saw is that as capital that was attracted to the industry grew, returns shrank. Uh, and as a result, and something else actually interesting uh, happened at the same time, because there's such a skewness to the returns, where such a small handful of portfolio companies really drive returns across the industry, um, many of the investors who were actually seeking, you know, mean returns were, were actually getting median returns, which really lagged the mean because of the skewness. And so, so many people said, "Wait a second, where's the beef? We're not invited. There's a party going on, and we're not uh, we're not invited." And so, this kind of not invited to the party phenomenon uh, persisted throughout you know the, the 2000s. But people were patient. The jolt of the financial crisis reminded people that the cost of illiquidity was not zero, that there was actually a cost to, to illiquidity, and venture being the longest dated, furthest out of the money option uh, that most people had in their, in their portfolio, um, suddenly became a lot less attractive. So what we're seeing is actually capital flight from the industry. Um, the fundraising numbers are, are kind of uh, back to, uh, you know, kind of $25 billion a year, but that's most of that, in the recent quarters, 85% of that has been concentrated in a very small handful, five funds, for example, in the most recent quarter. Um, so we're actually seeing a hollowing out of the middle. Um, you've got a lot of late-stage capital that's, uh, that's putting money in at, at high valuations. You've got actually a really uh, 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 interesting group of innovative smaller funds, um, but there's actually uh, a lot of opportunity and a lot of open field running for groups that are kind of savvy, experienced, and can be catalytic investors um, in a less capital-rich environment. Right, right. So um, taking a, a step back uh, a little bit further, um, as we think about what's transpired over the last uh, 30 years or so, we've had this debt super cycle, uh, the great moderation, a, a continuous lowering of interest rates and an explosion of debt, 
And of course, we've got a, a debt crisis in the U.S., in Europe, in Japan, and possibly even one in China. Um, so there's, there's debt that's been underlying uh, and helping to grow uh, so many economies. But now it seems that it's sort of hit a wall. And I'm sort of curious what your take is on how the, the, the macroeconomic uh, perspective of the debt supercycle is is harming the microeconomic, the very micro of the entrepreneurialism and venture capital industry. So it's interesting because it, it, it cuts both ways. Um, but actually, I'm even more optimistic uh, in light of what you just said about the role of venture capital in a portfolio. And I'm optimistic because venture capital is a true diversifier in the sense that, first off, Companies or venture-backed companies tend to be unlevered. You know, maybe they'll take on some venture debt. Maybe they'll take on some, some leases over time. But they tend to be unlevered. Um, importantly, the potential acquirers of these companies, companies like Microsoft, which is famously light on debt, or, or Apple that has an immense cash position, and others, um, you know, VMware, Salesforce, uh, you know, some of the, the newer acquirers, these companies tend to be very lightly levered as well and, and won't face as much constraint to their business model based on, uh, based on receding tides of, uh, of debt. The other thing that's actually really important is venture capital-backed companies tend to be deflationary in, uh, in their effect. Um, and what I mean by that is kind of the mantra of venture capital is can we, can we do something better, faster, cheaper? And so you look at uh, the disruptions that venture capital has, uh, has, uh, has uh, initiated, venture capital-backed companies have initiated, and what they do ultimately is at some level they shrink markets or they, they steal share from other markets and deliver more efficiency, more efficiency in the provision of services. And so the, the, the great kind of promise of venture capital is, uh, is that these companies will, will, uh, will, be able to, uh, will be able to drive efficiency throughout the economy and, uh, and prosper through a time of even receding, uh, receding tides of, of leverage. Wow. Well, that's a, a fascinating uh, conversation. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for joining us as well. Um, this is another edition of Take 15 with Chris Duvos. And uh, I'm Ron Rimkus. And be sure to check us out on Enterprising Investor blog as well as the cfainstitute.org um, website. Thank you very much. Copyright 2012 CFA Institute. This program is designed to give accurate and authoritative information in regard to the subject matter covered. It is distributed with the understanding that CFA Institute is not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax, investment, or other expert advice. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.